Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's lots more details coming out on the disappearance of Washington Post contributor Jamal Khashoggi. There's a video of teams of Saudi intelligence officials coming and going in private jets. A pro-government paper in Turkey has photos and is identifying the intelligence officials by name. One was a colonel in Saudi intelligence based in an embassy in London. London. There's a bone cutter that was purchased, according to Turkish officials quoted in the New York Times. The official said it was like pulp fiction. With me to talk about this is Juan Cole. He's professor of history at the University of Michigan. He's publisher of the Informed Comment blog. And his latest book, which was released just yesterday, is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And we'll talk about the new book as well. Thanks for joining us, Juan Cole. Thanks for having me, Jerome. Well, we all knew that uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was aggressive about cracking down on the opposition, that he was, um, you know, this bold guy who did things like the war in Yemen. But if this thing about Jamal Khashoggi proves to be true, does he become radioactive for the U.S. and the Trump administration to do business with as usual? Well, he ought to become radioactive. Uh, he, he's exhibiting all the signs of being a psychopath uh, and uh, the idea of a psychopath running a country like Saudi Arabia, which produces 11 percent of the world's petroleum, uh, is, is, is truly horrifying. He has enormous uh, resources, a trillion and a half dollars in uh, either sovereign wealth funds or cash reserves. Uh, imagine the, the chaos that could be produced by a psychopath with this kind of uh, war chest. There are so many details that are coming out about this over, over the course of the last 24 hours. And one of the disturbing ones is that you, in the Washington Post, they say that U.S. intelligence intercepted communications of Saudi officials discussing a plan to capture Khashoggi, um, and they didn't act on it. Th- this would be a big deal. That's right. Well, um, the intelligence, uh, uh, the, the Na- National Security Agency that eavesdrops on uh, communications is not an executive institution. It would pass its information over uh, to the White House. It's, the, it's always the president that orders action uh, or the president's uh, appointees. Uh, and so uh, if the White House doesn't respond, if it just sits on the information, then nothing happens. Another one of the interesting things that happened uh, today is people are digging around and uh, some people are looking back at an Intercept article that was published in March, an investigative article, and it talked about Jared Kushner disclosing the names of Saudis disloyal to the crown prince based on information he got from the president's intelligence brief, which he reads keenly. He's supposed to be the guy who really is interested in the president's intelligence brief um, back when he was able to read it. And there was um, – he was apparently staying up late with the crown prince until four in the morning and you know chatting him up and, and handing over intelligence. Right. Well, um, you know – Kushner is a big name and uh, very powerful in the Trump administration on foreign policy. But I have to say that um, the the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman did not need uh, Jared Kushner to tell him that uh, uh, Jamal Khashoggi (laughs) was acting out. Uh, Khashoggi had been close to the royal family. 
uh, and had been a prominent uh, commentator in the Saudi press for uh, decades and uh, left, went into exile more or less into in Washington, D.C. and was given a guest column in the Washington Post where he's been critical of Saudi policy. So his profile is is more similar to the people that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has kidnapped and imprisoned uh, his cousins in the Ritz Hotel uh, or uh, the, uh, uh, the the prime minister of uh, of Lebanon, Assad Hariri, uh, who was kidnapped by the crown prince. I mean, I think the signals have been there for some time that this is not a normal person. Uh, and not behaving normally uh, in, in, in international uh, norms. And uh, so uh, Kushner needn't have uh, uh, you know, said anything about Khashoggi for all this to happen. The U.S. has also been very close with the crown prince on a Middle East peace plan uh, that the king stepped in and said, you know, maybe we're not going to do this. But uh, they're probably – still cooking up something uh, for, you know, in some way helping the U.S. with a plan for uh, what to do with Israel and Palestine? Well, Mohammed bin Salman threw the Palestinians completely under the bus. I mean, the, the Saudis have often, you know, done little more than lip service for the Palestinian cause. Uh, and and they're a very wealthy establishment country and the Palestinians were turned into flotsam and jetsam by being expelled from their homes by the Israelis uh, and then occupied. So, uh, you know, the, the, the establishment in the Middle East is actually uh, a little afraid of the Palestinians. Uh, and so, um, you know, previous governments haven't done much either. But, but Mohammed bin Salman has been very open about the, his lack of interest in the uh, cause of Palestinian statehood. The Palestinians are stateless. They have no citizenship in anything. They have no rights. And, uh, uh, but he, he came to New York and, and told um, pro-Israeli leaders that he just didn't care about the issue. Uh, and I think he gave the green light to uh, Friedman and, 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 and Kushner and others in the Trump administration who are crafting a kind of permanent apartheid uh, regime for the Palestinians uh, under Israeli occupation and, and you know, to put an imprimatur on it of international legitimacy. And King, King Salman himself, uh, who's in his 80s and from an older generation, uh, I think got pressure from uh, the Saudi public and and, and notables uh, not to go along with this uh, uh, travesty, and so he did uh, signal uh, that his disagreement with his son. But uh, you know, he's th there's a question of how powerful the king really is, and also how lucid he is. He might go in and out a bit, a little bit of dementia. Uh, so the crown prince is really sitting in the catbird's seat. Another policy the U.S. might want to reconsider is uh, what's going on with the war in Yemen. I noticed that uh, Tim Kaine said, you know, was tweeting today that we should reconsider what, what's going on with Yemen because of, uh, you know, this kind of thing. Do you think the U.S. will change its position on this? Well, I think if the Democrats take Congress uh, in November, uh, it may well be uh, that they will, will pass legislation denying money to the Pentagon to uh, help the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates in their war on Yemen. I mean, in a way, uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman is is doing to Yemen what he did to Jamal Khashoggi. He's, he's 
cutting the people up into little pieces. Uh, and the United States is is helping. This is an air war on a guerrilla group. It's, it's bombing from the air. It's it's a lot like the American Vietnam War in that regard, uh, and um, hasn't had notable successes so far. It may succeed in the end, but uh, it's been three years of hard slogging and a lot of death and destruction, over 10,000 people killed, uh, millions uh, uh, displaced or put at danger of starvation, uh, food insecurity is rife. Uh, and uh, the United States is an active participant in this war. To my knowledge, they're not actually bombing, but they uh, give uh, logistical support. Uh, they're do- helping with refueling. Uh, they're advising. They choose targets. Uh, they've been annoyed, but uh, sometimes they'll say, well, don't hit this target because it would, uh, you know, it's a, a bridge that civilians need their food to come across, and then the Saudis will hit it anyway. Uh, and um, uh, But the United States is intimately involved in this war, uh, has been since the Obama administration, and in some ways, perhaps uh, American involvement in the war was a sop to the uh, Saudis and the United Arab Emirates for the Obama uh, nuclear deal with Iran, which which legitimized uh, Iran and made the Saudis very afraid. The Saudi line about Yemen is that it's a proxy war with Iran, but that's frankly uh, uh, silly. Uh, the, the, The Iranians have an involvement in Yemen, but it's it's not it's not really very big, and it's it's mainly a local uh, struggle. I'm talking with Juan Cole, professor of history at the University of Michigan, and we're talking about some of the implications of the disappearance of Washington Post contributor Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, officials from Turkey have accused the highest levels of the Saudi royal family in the abduction. And coming up in a few minutes, we will be talking about the United Nations and Nikki Haley's resignation and uh, Juan's book on Muhammad. But um, I wanted to ask a question about how Turkey is playing this, Juan. They are leaking material to everybody, and you can read about that they know where the where he was uh, murdered inside the inside the consulate. He there's all sorts of details about uh, the people involved, and they're all coming from unnamed Turkish officials and things like that. Um, does how far does Turkey go with this thing? They seem to be going pretty far with, you know putting the names of all the identifying uh, identifying all the uh, Turk- Saudi intelligence people who, who were involved. Um, how, what do you make of this? Well, Turkey and, and Saudi Arabia uh, already had very bad relations before this happened uh, and are on the opposite sides of a growing new divide in the Middle East. Uh, Turkey supported Qatar, uh, uh, the small uh, gas-producing state in the Gulf, when the Saudis and the UAE uh, blockaded it uh, and may have forestalled a Saudi invasion of Qatar. Uh, Turkey has uh, uh, relatively good relations with Iran and certainly good economic relations with Iran, uh, needs Iranian natural gas, whereas the Saudis want to uh, cut Iran off and kill it. Uh, and so Turkey is not on board with the Saudi program for the Middle East and, and it supports also the populist uh, Muslim Brotherhood, whereas the Saudis have arranged for the Muslim Brotherhood to be ter- declared a terrorist organization and persecuted in places like Egypt. So on a whole range of issues, Saudi Arabia and, and, and Turkey have been at, at daggers drawn and uh, the, the, the dispute hasn't 
hardened to the to the point of of formal enmity. But uh, this uh, this incident happening in Istanbul may well have been chosen by the Saudis to humiliate Turkey uh, as as part of its ongoing dispute with Turkey, and and Turkey is. Uh, then attempting to use it to humiliate Saudi Arabia. So there's a struggle between these two countries. Well, in the end, uh, does Turkey have a pretty good case that uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, now kind of some sort of uh, uh, you know state that goes around whacking people and, and you just can't trust and do business with? Sure. I think uh, – well, I mean the evidence is uh, Jamal Khashoggi is a very prominent journalist and uh, uh, you know, well-known in the D.C. circuit and had a Washington Post column, went into that consulate uh, to get papers with regard to marrying his Turkish girlfriend uh, and he did not come out. Uh, he, he's, he's gone and, and what did come out was small packages. So it does sound very much like that old uh, – uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino movie, the the, the Pulp Fiction, uh, where you know the the mobsters whack somebody and put them in acid or cut them up. Uh, I I will say that I think probably Vladimir Putin poisons people, uh, and um, uh, there's uh, there's a good deal of evidence for this uh, the cripple case in in, in the UK uh, recently and. Uh, uh, and yet uh, Mr. Trump uh, said, well, we whack people too and he meets with Putin and uh, it's, it's, it's not, not completely unknown for governments to behave this way so that the Saudis are doing this uh, is, is appalling and, and horrifying. Uh, they're not the only ones and uh, some governments that are uh, kind of seen as for some reason essential uh, to, to American diplomacy seem to get away with doing it. Does this whole thing put President Trump in a weird position? He has uh, a, a bad relationship with the Washington Post. He, he, he's constantly calling the press, uh, you know, the enemy of the people and things like that. And uh, the Washington Post in particular has drawn his ire and Amazon and Jeff Bezos and the, the whole bit. And I mean, he can't. He he's probably not eager to come out in defense of the Washington Post. Or I mean, it, it's an odd situation uh, that uh, the president has to get out there and, and say, well, I'm, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Or I, it's, uh, he's, he's part of the problem. He's part of the denigration of the press and, and the expendability of the press. Sure. Well, it goes beyond that because uh, Trump is a fascist. He's an authoritarian uh, and um, has never complained about any government uh, uh, that's friendly with the United States uh, or friendly with him personally, uh, repressing dissidents. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the Washington is full of hypocrisy and they'll go on for hours denouncing uh, anything that Iran does. Uh, but uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and, and, and under Trump, uh, uh, Putin in, in the Russian Federation, uh, get away with murder all the time. Uh, and uh, the likelihood that Trump is going to uh, champion murdered journalists is uh, uh, very low. I'm talking with Juan Cole, professor of history at the University of Michigan. He's the publisher of the Informed Comment blog. His latest book, which was released yesterday, is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. Juan, why did you want to talk about uh, Muhammad? You had this book brewing in you for years. Um, why did you want to write a book about him? Well, um, 
Yes, I, I've been studying this subject uh, since the 1970s and uh, uh, had gotten drawn by the current events uh, and kind of being a news hound. I worked for a newspaper in Beirut when I was young. I got drawn into modern history and even contemporary affairs. Uh, and but I had been trained, uh, you know, to study classical uh, Islam, and I had kept up with the field as best I could, and I, I you know, in my teaching and and, and research. So I wanted to uh, write about Muhammad uh, because uh, I felt he's become uh, a touchstone in in debates about the nature of Islam and uh, the position of Muslims. Uh, it's not an abstract thing. Uh, so you know there was a case uh, in Murfreesboro, uh, uh, where in Tennessee, where a local Muslim community wanted to expand their mosque and community center, and the city council tried to stop it on the grounds that Muslims are commanded by the scripture to be murderers, uh, and that you would have plots uh, going on in this expanded facility against the security of the the good people of of Tennessee. Uh, and and there have been a number of these kinds of public incidents. Uh, there there have been uh, attempts at legislation against uh, Muslim canon law, uh, uh, very much like you know as as though people in uh, in Nazi Germany tried to to legislate uh, about the practice of Judaism. Uh, so uh, it's it's concerning to me, uh, and and the, and and part of this campaign against Muslims is based on. Uh, allegations about the character of the Qur'an, the scripture of the Muslims, and of their prophet Muhammad. Well, being a historian, it seemed to me important to try to set the record straight. So you tell um, the tale in a uh, historical way. It's not a book about the Qur'an. It's about what Muhammad did in his life, and he was um, always angling for peace but would, um, would work in self-defense. That's right. Well, I think I think the prophet's ministry uh, fell in two parts. There was uh, he, he preached in the city of Mecca in in Western Arabia, now in Saudi Arabia, but at that time uh, it was uh, really without an overall government. And um, he uh, between six ten and six twenty two, he was largely based there. Uh, and in those uh, chapters of the Quran uh, uh, that are from that period, uh, he really urges turning the other cheek. Uh, I mean, the Quran says if people are harassing you, uh, withdraw from them graciously, uh, wish peace on your enemies uh, uh, and um, repel uh, evil with good. Uh, it, it, these verses sound to me an awful lot like uh, the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. Uh, but that was about verbal harassment, taunting, uh, boycotts, uh, social boycotts, not letting people marry your daughter, you know, sort of mistreating uh, the, the, the early Muslims uh, in Mecca by the militant uh, pagans who, you know, had a pantheon of gods and who were upset about Muhammad's monotheism. Uh, then th th they were actually expelled from Mecca under pressure and, and went to the nearby city of Medina. And moreover, the pagans uh, based in Mecca and around it decided to come after them in Medina and attack them uh, and you know, enslave them and, and force them back out of their religion. And at that point, uh, the prophet Muhammad's uh, teaching started veering towards 
self-defense. Uh, and uh, I argue that what's in the Quran about you know just war and self-defense uh, is very much like what's in the Church Fathers of late antiquity, uh, Saint Augustine or uh, Saint Ambrose of Milan. Uh, and uh, but the the Quran is very explicit that uh, it's it's authorizing you to defend your families from being attacked by people with swords, but it's not authorizing offensive warfare. It's not authorizing aggression or or uh, you know expansionism. Uh, and that if the enemy uh, who's attacking uh, decide, thinks better of it and, and asks for an armistice, the Muslims must accept the request and, and go back to peace. And one of the things you um, point out in the book is the Muhammad was caught between uh, the Persian Empire and the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, a lot of people thought he at the time he was uh, leaning towards the Holy Roman Empire. He was adopting things from he was a Western modernizer at the time. He wasn't um, wasn't he? He had a reputation that might seem unusual to people these days. Yes, I think it's something that uh, you know centuries of European polemic against Islam has has buried or covered up. And I think also later Muslim writings haven't been very uh, enthusiastic about the idea either. But the Quran gives clear evidence that Muhammad took the side of the Roman Empire of the Christian Roman Empire against uh, the Sasanian Zoroastrian Iranian Empire, which was attacking and invading the Romans. Uh, and the Quran predicts a Roman victory, which, which did actually, that prediction came true. Uh, and there's many points in the, in the book which, where you know, the Quran says the closest in love to the, to the Muslims are the, are the Christians and uh, uh, it, uh, it, it boasts of that, that these little battles that were fought in Western Arabia had as one side effect the protection of churches in uh, the uh, southern part of, of the Roman domains in what is now Jordan and Syria. Uh, so there's clear evidence in the Quran. Uh, the prophet was pro-Western uh, and uh, disapproved of the aggressive war that the, uh, that the Iranians were pursuing. And I think, again, that, that ties in with his ideas about peace, that peace – he has a preferential peace as his teaching. And uh, it, it may be necessary to fight a battle of self-defense if you're absolutely attacked. But uh, in ordinary circumstances, uh, 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 peace is, is to be preferred. And, and so an aggressor like the Iranians uh, who, who violated a, a treaty uh, of peace that they had with the Romans uh, came in for his disapproval. People can learn more about Muhammad in the book, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. Author Juan Cole is professor of history, University of Michigan, publisher of the Informed Comment blog. And uh, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Khashoggi and Muhammad. Thanks so much, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the United Nations and Nikki Haley. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday's resignation of U.S. U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley still has people wondering why and if U.S. policy towards the U.N. is changing. With me is Colin Lynch. He covers the United Nations for foreign policy and has been writing about uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, thanks for joining us, Colin. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, what did you do? You have a best guess as to why she really resigned. There's all sorts of rumors out there about ethics violations, about family debt. There's there's all sorts of rumors about things going on inside the Trump administration that it's becoming too John Boltony, and uh, it was a good time to get out. Do, do you have a favorite? Uh, I don't have a favorite. I mean, I'm hearing all the same um, theories. Um, I mean, I, I sort of always um, sort of imagine that. Uh, Haley, uh, who really went to great lengths to sort of carve out her own sort of identity within this uh, administration, um, would at some point break with the administration, um, you know, in terms of preparing for, you know, a possible um, kind of rebirth as a different kind of Republican uh, leader in the party, you know, sort of after uh, Trumpism, Trumpism sort of passes from, you know, uh, from the sort of you know, from the scene. And, and so I always kind of, kind of thought that she would probably leave sometime after the midterm, maybe after a Robert Mueller investigation um, to sort of preserve her kind of, you know, reputation to sort of her separation from the Trump administration. But I was kind of surprised that she did it in, uh, in the fashion that she did, uh, where, you know, she and the president were kind of praising each other um, and she, you know, committed not to running against him in, in 2020. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. You mentioned that she did try to carve out her own space at the U.N. And she talked, she was one of the, I think she was the only Trump administration official who really talked about human rights. She would criticize Bashar Assad. She supported a inquiry into the war in Yemen in the U.N. Uh, it didn't happen, but she was the only administration official supporting it. Uh, she said things about Russia that a lot of people didn't say in the administration. Um, behind that, was there the usual administration thing going on? You've got an article in Foreign Policy about uh, cutting off funding to UN programs. She certainly was uh, you know, someone who was going to tie U.S. foreign aid to how people vote in the United Nations. She had a, a Trumpian background in behind this human rights wall. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting because in her, particularly in her first year, she really uh, created a kind of brand for herself, which was distinct from the Trump administration. Um, they were moving away from human rights. She was continuing to embrace it. She was speaking critically of countries against countries like Saudi Arabia, a very outspoken um, on on the uh, on on the Russian leadership. Uh, was saying very early on that there was no reason to think that we would ever be able to work cooperatively with Vladimir Putin. That was at a time when the president was looking. You know, pursuing some sort of personal relationship with the, the Russian leader. So she was very, very much tried to sort of, you know, create this sort of uh, identity of, you know, an administration official who really cared about human rights. That sort of brand, I think, has been, you know, has been sort of damaged a bit by her kind of positions on, particularly on the Palestinian refugees, her sort of active efforts to sort of undermine funding for the Palestinian refugees to cut them off. And it's not just, you know, cutting off aid to the Palestinian Authority, which they really weren't doing. It was uh, cutting it off to U.N. programs that had been criticized by the Republican Party, but also cutting off aid to American NGOs that provide services in Gaza and elsewhere and cutting off aid to hospitals in East Jerusalem. So she, you know, her sort of position on Israel kind of made it difficult for her to sort of ma maintain this position as being, you know, a real champion for human rights across the board. 
Is the U.S. moving to a more John Boltony approach to the U.N. now? You think? I mean, but the U.S. has been cutting aid to Palestinians, to uh, women's programs, to human rights programs at the United Nations. Um, it can well, can it get yeah. more Boltony? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that the general trend of the Trump administration has been moving into a more isolationist, more conservative, more Trumpian mode. Um, you saw that first with the departure of Rex Tillerson, um, with uh, his replacement with Mike Pompeo, who is much more in line with the president's thinking. Um, the selection of, of John Bolton as the national security advisor. Um, you brought in, you know, a couple of sort of, you know, key players who are sort of much more uh, committed to sort of carrying out the president's vision. And so I think to a certain degree, um, it became more difficult for Haley to to kind of have a separate identity. And, you, you know, what's sort of interesting is in the first year, um, she had sort of filled a vacuum that was left by some of the other uh, cabinet members, Tillerson and, and McMaster and others who were less inclined to um, to be out in front speaking publicly about, you know, the whole Trump administration's foreign policy vision. And she kind of filled that gap. And now that uh, Pompeo and Bolton are in their positions, she's had a much lesser role. She was no longer kind of a key spokesman on on all the major foreign policy issues of the day. I'm talking with Colin Lynch. He is the Foreign Policy Magazine senior diplomatic reporter. He covers the United Nations. And in a few moments, we're going to have Global Notes, our look at international music. We'll be talking about some Latin sounds today. Stay with us. Um, Colin, what's the reputation of the United States at the U.N. these days? I mean, the Trump administration's pulled out of the Iran and Paris deals. People laughed at the president when he spoke at the United Nations recently. Uh, is this um, is Nikki Haley just <laughs> um, looking at the whole scene there and thinking, well, this is not not for me? As uh, the the U.S. just doesn't seem to have uh, you know is is just um, hostile towards what's going on at the United Nations, and I imagine the rest I of that. Yeah. I don't know. My sense with Haley is that she was perfectly willing to be the odd person out. I mean, I think that. You know the the you know you know sort of on the particularly on an issue like Israel Palestine. I mean, she was um, was I think perfectly happy to be seen raising her hand and vetoing a resolution supported by the entire Security Council on Israel as an act of you know defiance in the face of the international community and as a sort of expression of solidarity with Israel. I mean, I think that's the sort of issue which while it isolates the United States in the UN, it's the sort of image that I think is quite um, positive for her politically. I mean, the sort of thing that, um, that you know, in a, in a primary, you know, kind of vote in the Republican Party, that those sort of images are going to play quite well for her. So I think that the fact that the U.S. might be isolated on these issues like Iran, the Paris, um, you know, accord, that these are the sort of things that actually play well within the Republican Party and would be advantageous for her politically if she decided to seek future office. So it is true that the America standing uh, is not what it used to be. Um, a lot of that is just sort of the reality of kind of diminished American power. 
um, you know, since the end of the Cold War, when we were, you know, viewed as the sort of unchallenged sort of world power, um, that now, you know, China is rising, Russia is more active, um, other middle powers are sort of questioning America's sort of leadership role. And that sort of predates um, the Trump administration. You saw it under Obama as well. But so, you know, I think that is sort of in play. But I think at the same time, you know, the politics of this are not bad for Nikki Haley. I think they're pretty good. Colin Lynch is Foreign Policy Magazine's senior diplomatic reporter. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Nikki Haley's resignation at the United Nations. Great. Thanks for having me on. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson, and we'll listen to some urban sounds of Hispanic Heritage Month. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. With me is Catalina Maria Johnson. Good to see you. Hey, Jerome. Good to be back. Now, uh, you are the host of Beat Latino, so Hispanic Heritage Month is right in your wheelhouse. Hispanic Heritage Month is from September 15th to the 15th of October. We are just squeezing in here at the end, (laughs) but it's uh, directly in your wheelhouse, and that's some fun music from uh, making, making movies? Making movies, yeah, and closing out Hispanic Heritage Heritage Month, Latinx Heritage Month. There's a a lot of controversy over the word Hispanic. It's kind of a census word, but um, at least uh, celebrating the Latinx heritage of a number of cities. I thought I would choose different cities. That's Kansas cities making movies, and they're very uh, activist-oriented. They're involved both in the folk as well as the Latin world, and uh, that's a famous cover of a tune by Manu Chao called Clandestino, Clandestine. So I thought it would be a nice way to begin. They seem to be talking about marijuana in there. <laughs> There's a very famous line, yeah. They say, um, you know, you're from here, you're Mexican, you're clandestine, you're Peruvian, you're clandestine, and then marijuana is illegal. <laughs> but it's a, it's a play on all the illegal, illegalities uh, that we place out there. Making movies is uh, largely people from the Colombian mostly. No, no, no. Colombian. Uh, they're from no, no, Kansas no. City. They're from Kansas, Kansas City, City, but uh, Panama and Mexico. Panama, led by two brothers from Panama, whose last name is Chi C H I. Because of Panama has also an incredible heritage, not just Latin, but. Um, the Panama Canal being built brought a lot of Asian uh, immigration, so they are uh, 
Panama, and then there's Mexican members, there's an American member, and they're all in Kansas City. All right. Where are we going next? Washington, D.C. So this is Elena and Los Fulanos, a very traditional folk song, even though this is not all she does. And she's from Nicaragua. Fulanos. I was watching her concert at Lincoln Center on YouTube last night, really enjoying it. She's got a great presence and a great voice. It really brings it. Yeah, Nicaragua in Washington, D.C. And interestingly enough, there's a huge Central American population. So we're kind of like covering the cities here on Hispanic Heritage Month, well, covering five or six. Um, There's so many more. But there's a presence in each city, and and you know, it pulls from different roots. So she's uh, definitely kind of in the folk rock ballad uh, scene, but her uh, traditional music, folkloric music, also shines through on her albums, and she's impeccably bilingual. I, I really think Elena is, uh, her name is Elena Lacayo, and the group is Elena and Los Fulanos. Uh, she's also very activist, and, and like many Latinx Hispanics, you know, keeps one foot on in Nicaragua and one foot in D.C. and is always posting about the situation currently in Nicaragua. So binational, bicultural, musical folk. Uh, now we're going to go to Colombia. Yes, uh, to Queens. Queens, Colombia. <laughs> Queens, Colombia. Queens, New York, one of the largest Colombian populations uh, in the country. And out of there comes Macu Sound System. And this is their Por Encima. Taking in the sounds of Hispanic Heritage Month with Catalina Maria Johnson here on Worldview and Maku Sound System there. They've got an entirely different sound than the folky sound we were hearing before. And it's, it's really funky and bassy and, uh, and bringing the echo machine there. Definitely. And they, of course, uh, really take a lot of their sound from the Afro-Colombian roots of Colombia. So you get that uh, very, very uh, rooted Afro-Colombian sound shining through kind of, it's a large ensemble, I forget, nine or eleven members, large, and uh, great horns, great kind of psychedelic beat 
That's Maku, Col- Colombia in New York. <laughs> Maku Sound System. Uh, where are we off to next? We're off to uh, Boulder? Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, it, we're everywhere. <laughs> this is a very fascinating artist who uh, sings in English and uh, Spanish and in indigenous language and uh, in the context of hip hop. And are you going to try to pronounce this name? <laughs> I was hoping you would do it. <laughs> it's Xiu. Tezcatl, and it's got that TL that is part of the Nahuatl, the original Mexican language. Tezcatl Martinez from Boulder, Colorado, from an album called Break Free, and this is Tiawil's Light. Tlawilis. Light. Tienes que yo, totio sochime. Tienes que yo, totio cuicame. Dejamos flores, por lo menos dejamos cantos. When I was a little boy, my father taught me something about our legacy. In a world where cities fall and the earth changes and leaders are overthrown and people left behind, almost everything around us is impermanent. Every breath we take. Our ancestors taught us that although our people were colonized, our temples destroyed and our ceremonies forbidden, our legacy would live on in flowers and songs in the hearts of the people and we get to make the choice whether or not that's Sudiscatl Martinez a rapper from Boulder he has some indigenous uh, background mm-hmm. he's also an environmentalist which is uh, just hinted at here in this but he's uh, involved in a big time environmental lawsuit he's quite an interesting young man he's fascinating um, and this flower uh, this song references flowers and songs and it's from an old Mexica Nahuatl um, poem song and it, it's about when you leave the earth you leave behind but you might only leave your flowers and your songs that might be the only thing that's left behind flowers and songs so he's referencing that mythology that poem and song and some very very ancient kind of uh, rooted uh, in the indigeneity of Mexico. And I thought it was important for, uh, in Hispanic Heritage Month, this like census created term of Hispanic, to like say, you know, do not forget that there is an African legacy that we honor. Do not forget there's an indigenous legacy that we honor as a part of that, which then became, you know, colonized and became Hispanic. And he's a part of this uh, environmental lawsuit that uh, in environmental circles is a very big deal. There's about, I think, around 20 young people who sued the U.S. government, who are suing the U.S. government for not doing enough on climate change and that they're, that they're harming their future. And this lawsuit is moving forward and it was started in the Obama administration. It's now two years in here. And there's a lot of people who think that this, uh, that this lawsuit scares uh, the, you know, the officials more than a lot of other lawsuits about climate change. It's a big deal. Yeah, um, I, I've said it, I've thought it before, the young are going to save us. <laughs> and, and provide some pretty good music. And, provides a, and provide a soundtrack for the revolution while they're at it, for sure. Um, where are we going at next? We're going to California, and uh, there's a whole soundscape that's happening in California. I mean, it's it's impossible to Los Angeles. It's impossible even in looking at Los Angeles to talk about one Hispanic or Latinx sound. But this is brand new. Um, it's about dreamers. It's n- not from the Mexican perspective, which we all often think about, but someone who is a, the daughter of Chilean Chile, uh, 
from Chile immigrants. So this is Maria del Pilar, and the song is Original Dreamers. PR with uh, original dreamers. Uh, that's uh, that has like an '80s feel to it, or something. It's like got this kind Very of creamy, kind of light, bouncy, dream, dreamy pop ballad from yeah. Los Angeles. Yeah, it's got a lot of sunny skies in there, even though it's a serious topic. Absolutely. Now, um, Catalina, where are you off to next? Well, um, Las Palmas, the Canary Islands, the World Music Expo coming up. So um, I, we have a huge time difference. Won't be able to probably do anything live, but we'll be uh, sending lots of Instagram posts and tagging everybody and uh, coming back with some amazing music, I promise. Ex- explain what Womax is like. Womax is uh, uh, kind of like the... Like- kingpin of uh, <laughs> it's more than just music it's it's everything it's an industry showcase so it's the world music expo so the days are uh, roughly 10 to 6 there's stands of all kinds record labels artists different countries come it's international it's the world music expo so colombia has a big stand argentina has a stand spain has stands so uh, mexico often has stands so from individual artists to labels to festivals um, our world our cultural center uh, people go there too a lot of uh, keep track of the talent and and keep track of the take the pulse of what's coming our way for the next couple of years and then the evening there's showcases they're officially curated showcases it's a it's a big deal to get into Womex because you're basically sharing your talents not just with the public who can buy a ticket for the evening but with the entire a very, very international contingent of festivals, curators, administrators, um, people that book auditoriums, university theaters, everybody. Are the music is the music that gets featured usually newcomers who want to break out into the international scene, or is it old standbys who are kind of mm-hmm. uh, pleasing to the folks? There? I think it's hard to say because you know what's a discovery for us is pro- might not be a discovery for the Germans or for you know for the Italians or for the Canadians. So it's a mixture. You know, it's you. Usually, a fifty. I would say at least fifty percent discovery for somebody, for everybody. <laughs> well, it sounds like fun, and the, and it moves around every year. So the Canary Islands is it's a is different, a, is uh, yeah, a nice choice. A different European city every year, and it's in Finland next year. So <laughs> I'm googling Finland sauna, vodka. You know, <laughs> that'll be entirely different, scene, won't it? I guess that's different. what makes it fun. It is. It is, and it's a beautiful community because I do have to say this about the world music community perhaps more than any other part of the music industry, I'm biased, but they're, um, 
they care. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a mission-driven kind of uh, group of people. They want to share international music, and they believe very strongly in its power to change the world, to change hearts and minds. So that's always, like, huge, inspiring, hugely inspiring. Um, let's go to our last tune here. Uh, where are we going for we're our last staying. stop? Of, <laughs> we're not going anywhere. We're for not going anywhere. <laughs> we're staying in Chicago. We couldn't go through cities and sounds and not talk about Chicago. Dos Santos and Taibit uh, Orquesta. And they're like very cool. El Salvador, Puerto Rico, Panama, and Mexico. Pan Latinx. Very uh, cool sound. This is Cafeteando. This is Chicago's own. Dos Santos, Chicago's own Dos Santos. Uh, nice. I like the horns. I like the rhythms. Very nice. Catalina Maria Johnson, thanks a lot for joining for Hispanic Heritage Month and sharing some of the urban sounds of Hispanic Heritage Month. She'll be doing more of this on Beat Latino, as you can catch on Vocalo or online. And if you don't follow Catalina on social media, you are missing out. It makes you feel much hipper and much more knowledgeable about the world music scene to follow Catalina on social media. Uh, Catalina Maria, Maria J. J. And thanks a lot for joining us. We'll see you next week. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will talk about an institution here in Chicago that's been here like 35 years. They help torture survivors from other countries who are coming to this country. They've sought asylum here. It's the Kovler Center for for Torture Survivors. And uh, we'll talk with uh, the program director there about a symposium that they're having on trauma and torture coming up. And uh, that's tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Heide, and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview.